Nobody in this room would question the beauty and genius of God's design of the human body, both physically and emotionally. But because of sin, that's a design is prone to malfunction. Our emotions, for example, get the best of us. So that distress and trial are not just physical. We are offended and hurt, and often carry this baggage to the grave. Even God's ingenious warning system in our physical bodies, the peripheral nervous system, can be the source of incredible pain when our nerve endings misfire because of disease. As Christians, we endure all the suffering that all men endure, but with the additional mistreatment that comes with following the Savior that is hated by the world. So what do we do? What do we do in the midst of suffering, especially when it is brought about by other people? We'll turn with me to James chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, and we will look at the answer from Scripture. James chapter 5. Verses 7 through 8 is our passage this morning as we come to the close over the next few weeks of our study of James. He writes, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. Be patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. This morning, four pillars to stand on in the midst of suffering. Four pillars to stand on in the midst of suffering. The first pillar is the plan. The plan. I'm going to read for you again the first part of verse 7. He says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. A good question if you study the scriptures, especially when you see a connected word. Like the word therefore, especially this word, a little simple, albeit a bit cheesy, rhyme that you can ask yourself is, what is the therefore? Therefore. Especially when we study verse by verse, we can easily just be so focused on this passage and ignore the and, the but, the therefore, or the so, and forget about the context. So here we need to understand what the therefore refers to, because this is such an important thing. I'm sure... All of you are eager to know how are you to biblically deal with suffering and trials. Well, we have to understand, first of all, is he even talking about suffering and trials? And therefore, it's going to key us in to what he's talking about. This goes back to the section preceding this verse that started in verse 1 and comes up all the way through verse 6. The main lead into our passage this morning being verse 6. But I want to read for you. Verses 1 through 6 of James chapter 5, which we've covered already over the past two weeks. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will give witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which have been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has raised the ears of the Lord to settle oath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And here it is. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you, 
Therefore, be patient, brethren. Now he switches gears from rebuking and warning the oppressive rich to encouraging and exhorting the oppressed poor. In other words, the people who are crying out, the poor who are being denied their wages, the ones who cannot eat day after day because the already rich man in his sinful greed wants to get even richer. That's who he's talking to now. The victims of the sinful wealthy, in other words, those who are going through suffering at the hands of another individual. Knowing what the wealthy do, and causing the righteous poor to starve and even die, being unpaid and thus unfed, what are these Christians to do? Revolt? Fight back? Kill? Just as strongly as you would say no to those options, we can assume these early Christians thought the same way. So what do they do? James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Know that the Lord is coming. Trust the Lord that he is coming. Be patient until that day. This coming refers to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has already in many of their lifetimes come, crucified, buried, resurrected, and then ascended. He's no longer on earth physically. So this is not a call that he's over in another city, he's going to come and avenge you. They're talking about the future second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as much as their problems are arising from the wealthy being overly focused on what is here on earth, the poor are to find their relief from what is not, at least not yet, Jesus Christ. The specific call here, stated as a command or an imperative in the Greek, is be patient. This is a command. And this Greek word is a compound word. It's formed by two different words mushed together. And the two words are long and anger. We say long-tempered, slow to anger. He's got a long fuse. We don't really say that. We usually say he has a short fuse because he gets mad quickly and easily. The contrast would be someone with a long fuse. It takes a lot for them to get anger. And here, he's saying, be long-tempered. Be slow to anger because remember, there is an individual that they can be angry at because it's not just a disease that they're suffering. It's not just society. It is a particular individual or individuals who are causing this suffering. This word specifically talks about being long-tempered, being patient with other people. We've seen James talk about endurance, which talks more about being patient with circumstances. Both are commanded of the believer, but here we are to be patient with people. And so when it is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of oppression, this calls for patient endurance with an attitude that can endure the delay of something. Right? Be patient means something is coming that we need to be patient for. Bear this suffering in a godly way, is what he's saying. In this context, James is talking about believers who are suffering, as you know, because of the exploitation and abuse of the wealthy. So what is to be endured? Is this poor treatment from the wealthy what they are to endure until is Christ's return? 
because of the context of waiting until the second coming, we know that these principles can be applied not just to this specific type of suffering, a farmhand who needs his daily wage to survive the next day. It can be any type of suffering. We can take these principles we're going to learn this morning and apply them to all trials, all difficulties, even if they're not at the hands of other individuals, but specifically when they are at the hands of other men or women. James uses the word in a tense that denotes a sense of urgency, a specific act of patience. This is not just we need to have this attitude of patience, it's not just what we teach our children. Generally speaking, you need to be patient. He understands that there is an immediate situation that they are getting frustrated with. They are already upset, and now they're literally hungry, starving, which makes them more upset. It makes them naturally cranky. And so he says, quickly, now, before anything happens, this day, and you've just been withheld your pay, hour ago, now, be patient for this situation, right now. There's an urgency to it. A specific practicing or display of patience in the given circumstances. The circumstances, again, being the current oppressive situation. We need to cultivate a patience all the time so that when a particular instance of suffering happens, we have that patience right there in our back pocket because we have cultivated in this context this longing and appreciation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this technically means to be long-tempered, long-fused. So although this means being patient in the sense of patiently waiting, it also includes the idea of not getting angry, not getting frustrated, this is not saying, okay, I'm going to endure because the Lord is coming again, but in my heart I'm going to hate this man who is hiding me. No, you don't do that. Especially as a meaning here of not exacting vengeance on the rich oppressors. This kind of vengeance or anger not only makes you like the world, but it attacks the world, both of which are denounced in the New Testament especially in the context of being, being mistreated. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 12. This chapter starts with a very well-known passage regarding how we are to live in this world, specifically how we are to resist the temptations and the pressures of the world to become like it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to give you this general background and then we're going to skip to a specific passage later in Romans 12 that talks about what we're talking about here this morning. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, that is in light of salvation that he's talked about in chapter 11. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Quick aside. You wonder, where did the Old Testament physical sacrifices of those animals go? New Covenant believer, the New Testament believer, it is now you. Not that you're being sacrificed physically to death, but your sacrifice is service. That is the, the aroma. Remember the Old Testament talked about they would burn these sacrifices 
just like any carnivore in this room, you smell that barbecue, and like, ooh, that's good stuff. Like, oh, I'm so excited to come to this party, but even more excited when I pulled up, I could smell it from a block away. And that's the same idea, the aroma going up into the nostrils of God. Not literally, because he understood what was in their hearts and that they were obeying him. And so that's the idea, when we obey the Lord. Weird analogy I'm about to give you, but as you obey the Lord with the right heart, it is that sweet smell of tasty barbecue. It is that sweet aroma of obedience and glorifying God. Verse 2 of Romans 12. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Just as we enjoy pleasant smells, we also revolt from nasty smells. And here you have the choice to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord or one that is putrid and gross. But now let's jump to verses 17 through 21, still in Romans chapter 2. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Not you, the Lord. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Not the neutral homeless guy. You see that? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Take this to James. If the tables are turned somehow, one day you are a rich landowner, and your former boss is now the day laborer, you pay him extra. Feed your enemy. He's hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will be burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. On the flip side, we have seen how this kind of endurance that James is calling for, especially in trials, it's profitable for the man or woman of God. It's not just how we respond to the world, it is good for us. Remember James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because we're insane? No. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Wonderful. Wonderful promises. So that's our first pillar to stand on in the midst of suffering. The plan. God's plan. We must trust God's plan. Not only the fact of the second coming, but also the timing of the second coming. Be patient. We are to patiently wait as his plan unfolds. For centuries, believers have done this as they suffer all over the world. Some being abused, others being exploited, still others being martyred for their faith. As far as we know, this may continue for centuries to come. 
We don't know how long, but we know he's coming. We don't know when he will come, but we know how we are to behave until he does. And in light of suffering and abuse, one thing is for sure about the second coming, when it does happen, all of the suffering, whether from the greedy, rich, and powerful, or even from the persecuting, poor, and powerless, all of it will end when Christ returns. But Christ didn't return in the lifetimes of James's audience, but we can trust that up until their dying breath, they were abused by the rich. And up until that same breath, they patiently endured with the return of Christ as their guide and motivation. Trust God. Trust His plan. But with any plan, it needs to be put into effect. There is a process. And that is our second pillar to stand on in the midst of suffering. The process. James now gives a real-world practical example of patience, as well as the benefits of patience. We know that those being harmed are the farmhands. So what he is about to illustrate would have resonated with the readers. It is a picture of the patient farmer. Look at the end of verse 7. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early. The key here is that the farmer waits. He lets nature take its course. He lets the agricultural process unfold. That word wait here is a verb that refers to eager anticipation, eager expectation. He anxiously awaits the coming of the produce that is brought about by the rains. The early rain in Palestine being in the fall, October, November, which was necessary for the germinating of the seed. The late rains in the spring, April, May, led to the maturing of the crop right before the harvest. But here's the thing. The rains are out of his control. He cannot bring them sooner for an earlier payday. He can't bring them later because he's busy and wants to delay the sowing of the seed. All he can do is wait. He knows that getting anxious or frustrated isn't going to bring the rains any sooner, and so he remains patient. And he remains patient because experience has told him that the rains will come, and so will the produce. And in the same way, we can patiently wait for the fulfillment of God's promises because experience has shown us that he always fulfills his promises. And in this case, most of our experience is not personal, but in world history and descriptions. And notice that what he waits for in verse 7 is not just the produce, but the precious produce. The word in the NIV is translated valuable. It's important to him. Its value is not just because of the hard work of the farmer, but also because of his need for it. It is his livelihood. For the farmer and his family, Life itself is dependent on a good harvest. So he can eat some of it and sell the rest. A bad year can lead to starvation and even death, as they would have nothing to eat, nothing to sell. So naturally, there will be a longing, a hoping. 
envision of this produce that values this produce as precious. And we see how this correlates to the second coming. How valuable is it to you that it comes again? Do you long for it? Do you hope for it? Or are you perfectly satisfied with the fact that you are saved here and now? Are you living so much for Him that this world is just a means to glorify Him but is otherwise a place you'd rather leave and so you anxiously await His return? Because just like the farmer and his crops, if Christ doesn't come again, we are as good as dead. Not physical, but spiritual. Do you long for Christ's return as much as a farmer longs for his crops because it means life or death? Do you long for Christ's return as much as you long for your paycheck, for a spouse, for kids, for likes on your social media posts? After planting the seed, there is a lot of weight. The farmer must be patient. Can't look at the ground and say still nothing. Dig up the seed to see if it's sprouted. That'll kill it. I've done that. Trust me, I know. He can't lose his nerve and say forget it. I know the rains are coming, but if I act quickly, I can just dig up all the fields again and redo everything. We do that sometimes, don't we? Rather than being patient and trusting God, we turn to the world. We turn to its comforts, the world and its wisdom. We give up. We give in. We give up on God's process and we give in to sin. We take matters into our own hands. We find God's way too slow, too painful. So we see what the world has to offer to take away the pain or remove the persecutor. Maybe it's through vengeance. Not, if not physical violence, then gossip and judgment, justification in our own minds. We know this is very true of the world. It's often through drink and drugs to alleviate, if just temporarily, the physical pain and mental anguish. Some may even argue against other believers who are well-meaning and biblically minded to justify their avoidance of total obedience which they don't even realize is the source of their difficulties. If we're honest, bad theology, liberal ministry, they are easier to follow than what the Bible calls for because there is no cross to bear. That is why we call it seeker-sensitive. You've heard the term, there's a method to the madness, usually in the context of witnessing a plan unfold that doesn't seem to make sense, but the process, the method is actually intentional. We see this in God's plan for the world. The world is gross. The world is gross. It is wicked, and in God's plan, it's not getting any better, nor will it. And in light of the sovereignty of God, we may question lovingly in a way that honors God, not angrily. Why is this being allowed, Lord? Why is this happening, Lord? And we wonder why He is not here yet. We cry out like the martyrs of Revelation 6, How long, O Lord? 
O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? But we trust that he not only has a plan, but he knows how to put that plan into effect. We know he has a process. And like the seasons that bring produce to the farmer, the process may seem strange and ineffective to us. But in the end, with the farmer, we understand that everything is perfect because it's the plan of God. Though it may be hard to deal with today, though it may be scary to look at the potential darkness of tomorrow, we trust not only that God has a plan, but that He knows exactly what He's doing in the process. So take comfort, my friends. He knows what He's doing, and what's more, He knows how you're doing. He knows that you're suffering. He knows the difficulty. We know from James that he allowed the difficulty. He's using that difficulty. Trust him. The process is uncomfortable at best, painful at worst, but it is all part of his wonderful, perfect plan for you and for your good. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. I get it. Sometimes you may think, especially if your trial is brought about by sin, as we'll talk about in coming weeks in James, say, well, God's angry. God's left me. God's forgotten me. No, He hasn't. He hasn't. And with all due respect, I don't care how you feel, if that's how you feel, He has not left you. He is here. How do I get closer to God? Oh, you silly, silly person. He gets close to you. He is there. He cares about you more than anyone else ever can or will. Trust the process. Thirdly, the pursuit, the pursuit. The third pillar to stand on in the midst of suffering involves us pursuing something, and that is in the beginning of verse 8. You too, be patient and strengthen your hearts. James repeats the command to be patient, but now adds strengthen your hearts. He introduces it with you too. In other words, like the farmer, you too are to be patient. And I call this the pursuit because one can easily assume that patience means doing nothing. You see the picture of you're waiting in a long line and there's a lady in line in front of you and the kids are, you know, getting all crazy, wanting to run around. She says, be patient. What is she saying? Do nothing. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop it. And so we can easily think with that picture it just means do nothing. It's just a waiting game. But this wait is hard, and there's a pursuit of the right heart and mind that we must actively engage in. And this is what we pursue. To be patient for the coming of the Lord involves an inherent desire for Him to come. I have never had to tell my children to be patient as they wait for something they do not want. 
be patient, the medicine's coming. Hold on, I'm, I'll get to the spanking. I'll get to it, be patient, I know you want it. And never, never, right? What do I have to tell them to be patient for? Playing, screens, going for, leaving for a party, dessert, things they really want. And in this case, we can be challenged by the early church's longing for the Lord's return, which makes complete sense in their situation because they had nothing in this world. They had nothing in complete contrast to the source of their suffering, the wealthy. And the reality is, those of us in this room today are more like the wealthy in this scenario in terms of our possessions on earth. Though we may be righteous and godly and we're not oppressing anyone, the reality is that we are not suffering physical poverty. We are not concerned we will starve to death by the end of the week. We are not people like James's audience who have absolutely nothing on this planet to hold on to. And that's something we need to be aware of. Because for most in the room, we don't have the same sense of despair, which leads to a longing for Christ's return as much as those who have nothing to live for on this earth. We have much in this world. And so the enjoyment and comfort that we experience here can make his return less desired. It's not that we don't want him to come again. It's not that we don't believe that he is coming again. It's not that we don't understand the beauty of what that entails. But maybe just not yet. Let me have kids first. Let me get married first. Sure, we may cry out for him to return during serious trials. We may even think about it these days, this month, as we walk back, walk by the ever-increasing number of flying pride flags. But really, when is the last time you needed a solid brother or sister in Christ to sit you down and say, calm down, he's coming? I know you really want it. Just calm down. Trust in him. Be patient. Not patient for the end of a trial. Not patient for the kids to learn and grow up. Not be patient in your desire for some earthly thing like a gift in the mail or a family vacation. But patient for the Lord's return because you want him to come back so badly. You want it now. You want him to come back so badly you don't even want me to finish this sermon. Come back, Lord. Come back now. Do you desire the Lord's return? He goes on to give us a clue as to how to wait. He says, strengthen your hearts. Literally, make your hearts stable. Establish them. Set them firmly. But on what? On your faith, especially in the midst of suffering. Think about that. When we say that we have faith, what does that mean? You say, well, I have faith in him. Well, what about him do you have faith in? Well, firstly, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4 summarizes it for us, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the foundation of our faith, the gospel. But secondly, although it is part of what we just read, that Jesus is still alive. Alive and aloof? No. 
Alive but forgotten us? Never. Alive, watching, waiting, controlling, and coming again. To put it another way, there's a full consummation of who Jesus is in the context of his redemption plan. He must return, not just for us, but to fix all of this. To deal with Satan and the demons. To deal with unbelieving mankind. To deal with the sin-stained physical heavens and earth. And it is by and for these truths that we strengthen our hearts. It is a courage that comes from knowing, but also trusting the Lord. How do we do this? It starts with what has been called the heartbeat of the Christian life, right? The heart beats in twos, right? Ba-bum, ba-bum. Praying, reading God's Word. Praying, reading God's Word. That is the core, the essence. Not just legalistically, not just to do it, because you truly know that you are talking to the Lord and turning to Him, and He is talking to you through His Word, Strengthening your heart also means things like practicing biblical fellowship by praying for others and being prayed for, getting into people's lives for sharpening and rebuking, both as the giver and the recipient. Jesus, knowing that one of his closest friends, Peter, was going to deny him, said this in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, that was Peter's other name, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, listen to this, you, Peter, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says, I know you're going to deny me, but then when you repent from that, strengthen others. And in speaking of the call to Christianity, later Peter then says in 2 Peter 1.12, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, Christians, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. You're established in the truth, you know it, but I'm going to keep reminding you of it, says Peter, to strengthen you, to establish you more. This means that the strengthening of our hearts involves speaking truth to one another, but also going to church to let someone like me speak truth to you, to remind you of what you have already been established in. You can also strengthen your heart by turning to God first. Some of you who come to me for counsel know that one of the first questions I'll ask is, have you prayed about it first? Go to the perfect before you come to the imperfect. Because frankly, I'm just going to give you the words of the perfect. So why not go to the source? Turn to God first before man, government, therapists, even yourself, even your pastor. We saw this principle played out even in your own planning. Remember this at the end of James 4, turn to God first before you trust in your own plans. Go to such and such a city. Listen to Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. You say, but surely that's just average man, normal man. 
Then he goes on in verse 9. This is Psalm 118. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes than even the most powerful of men. To acknowledge and believe that whatever plans you make will only happen if God wills it. So turn to him. Trust in him. Now, whether you are in a direct and specific trial or not, all believers are to be patient for the Lord's return, and while waiting, we are to strengthen our hearts, to be patient, to develop this mindset, this heart attitude. But then at the end of verse 8, James 5, he tells us what he is basing this entire exhortation on, everything we've looked at this morning. He is basing on the end of verse 8, and the promise is that the Lord's return is near. That's the promise, pillar number four. We've seen the plan, the process, the pursuit, and now the promise. For the coming of the Lord is near. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Be patient, for the coming of the Lord is near. I've entitled this sermon, pillars of promise because a promise is what this whole passage centers around. And James now ends the very way that he began with the coming of the Lord. He began with the Lord's return as an object of patient endurance. Now he ends with the Lord's return as a promise and specifically that it is near. Near literally meaning drawing near, approaching, coming close. The Lord's return is imminent. And it is in this promise that everything else we've talked about this morning makes sense and is made possible. Now I want to take a moment to talk about the proverbial elephant in the room in this passage. They say that hindsight is twenty twenty. As we read this letter, we know that it was originally written and read to a specific group of believers That lived 2,000 years ago when Christ has not returned. James encouraged them to be patient because the Lord's return is near to them in their lifetimes. And we know it has not happened yet, which means obviously it didn't happen in their lifetimes either. Now, James didn't know this. He didn't know the Lord wouldn't return in his lifetime. He surely hoped he would, but he didn't know. But God did. And he ultimately is the author of this letter. He was telling his children to be patient and endure because the Lord is coming soon, knowing full well that it would not be in their lifetime. And yet, these people who are suffering on an hour-to-hour basis, could easily assume, oh, he means like in a few months from now. You could see how this would be even more logically uh, come to because they're like, well, Jesus just left, and so it would make sense that he comes within the same generation, comes back, right? But he hasn't come. And he says the Lord is near. And this is not the only place that it says that. It's like telling a a man on the streets who is hungry and cold, starving, hang in there. I know it's tough, but be patient. Oh, 
he thinks, because you're going to go buy him some food and a blanket. No, be patient. Because I know that your great, 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 great grandkids will have good jobs and will never be hungry or cold. How does that help him? Or telling a terminally ill patient, hold on, just hold on, don't give up, because there's going to be a cure in 600 years. How does that help them? When we engage in patience in the midst of suffering while waiting for the Lord to return, this is so important. It is more than just patience we would exhibit in waiting for, for for example, a, a vacation that's a few months away. Because what do we do in that situation? Some of you are in that situation right now. You want it so bad that you try to keep your mind off of it, right? Like, I'm going to go crazy. This is not till August. I'm going to go crazy if I keep thinking about it. You just focus on work, keep busy. In other words, you try not to think about it at all. But then there's another tactic that some people use to wait for that vacation, and I think it's more common these days with the invention of the Internet. They have a postcard of that very beach that they're going to with the palm trees swaying, stuck on their computer monitor at work. And in their free time, they research about things to do at that vacation destination. In other words, they plan ahead and they keep it in the forefront of their minds because it keeps them sane today. It'll help them get through the difficulties of the long work weeks and the challenges of their workplace and life. When we patiently wait for the Lord's return, it doesn't mean forget about it and keep busy. It's talking about your attitude right now, knowing full well you may not experience in your physical lifetime His return. It means study the Word. It means get to know the Lord better. It means pray. It means anticipate. In other words, let His imminent return motivate you in this life. But unlike the separation between work and vacation, the anticipation for the second coming is to be integrated into your work and life and family. It's not something we look forward to to help us get through life. It is something that dictates how we get through life. Remember, James is talking to people who are fighting to survive. They have barely enough to eat. They are exploited. They are abused. They are hurting. He's not telling them to just grin and bear it because Jesus is coming. He is telling them to deal with it in a way that glorifies God because Jesus is alive and coming again. And, and isn't this the key for the Christian life? Our number one priority is that we glorify God in our own lives. That's your number one priority. As a pastor, that's my number one priority. As a dad, that's my number one priority. Not my kid's salvation, not their spiritual growth, my spiritual growth. What good does it do any of you or any of my children if I'm only focused on you? Right? That's your number one priority. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, everything, right? Loving God, honoring God, obeying God, having the right mindset. And part of that right, right mindset is hating your own sin. And as you do that, as you grow in your understanding of your own spiritual growth, it will click as you mature as a believer, as it has for most, if not all of you, that it's not just about me glorifying God in my life, it's about glorifying God, period. It's about God's glory, period. So not just that I'm okay, but then also that my kids are okay, that my congregation is okay, that my brother and sister in Christ, my spouse, is okay. I almost said spouse is. That would have been weird, huh? That your spouse is okay, and then that goes, and then you become, I don't judge the world. I have compassion for them, and you want them to be okay, not to feel happy, not to just avoid sin, but to come to saving knowledge of Christ and then avoid sin because of that. And then you look at our lives, and it spreads, and it spreads, and it spreads, and you look at the world, and you say, well, I want the Lord to come again. I want the Lord to come again to fix this because it's broken. It's broken. And so we live in a way so that we will do what we can in following Christ to honor Him through our lives, through our families, through our church, but then through our relationships with the unbelieving world. Let me put it this way. The key to this patient, patience rather, is not about how long you have to wait. The key, again, is about how you wait. How you wait. Four pillars to stand on in the midst of suffering. God's plan, the process in that plan, the pursuit, patience, strength in your hearts, and the promise. The Lord's coming is near. How near? I don't know. But nearer right now than when we began this morning. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to know the Savior and to know that our Savior is alive and well and is coming again. Father, as we are warned in Scripture, may we not be so focused on times and dates and whether the stars align, but to be focused on glorifying You, focused on repentance, focused on having a right heart. Father, may we live in a way that desires Your glory so much that we hate sin, not the sinner, but the sin that we see and have compassion on the world around us, that we focus on our hearts that we might honor you in everything and pull in everything that we've looked at over the past few weeks regarding the world and all it has to offer, making plans in a biblical way. I pray, Father, that we would long for your return so much that we need to be reminded to be patient about it and to live in light of that return and with a patience that honors you. Help us to see and rely on you for vengeance 
And help us not to be concerned about avenging, but on compassion and evangelism and living in light of your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.